0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Another day is here and you're
0: ready for it. What to wear. Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where bank of America can help for your financial to do's bank of
1: America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hello.
0: How are you? What's going on? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Liste here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're okay. I have Jamie Attenberg on the program today. She has a new memoir out on Echo. It is called I Came All This Way to Meet You, Writing Myself Home. And it is always fun talking with Jamie Attenberg. With this new book of hers, she is breaking some new ground. Having written her first memoir, I Came All This Way to Meet You, is about home. It's about finding one's artistic home, one's physical home. It's about feeling good inside one's own skin. It's about what it takes to be an artist in our world today. It's about the choices that we make and it's about the consequences of those choices. It's about being a woman in this world and trying to make a life in the arts on one's own terms. And it's about other stuff, too. I really enjoyed it and enjoyed my talk with Jamie Attenberg. That is coming up in just a bit. I should say, too, that reading this book and talking with Jamie helped to settle me a bit. I've been a little bit unsettled lately as I have entered into this period of limbo between finishing my book locking the text, sending it off to uh, my editor who subsequently sent it off to the printer, and then now just sort of waiting for publication, which is still four months away. And I think what's what's been interesting and unsettling about the experience is that I did not expect it. I didn't expect to be unsettled I think I figured you know I've done this before I know what to expect I'm not going to be unsettled and yet here I am it's unsettling it's unsettling to be unsettled But as Jamie Attenberg surely knows, as do other writers with whom I've spoken in recent weeks, this is a pretty normal experience for this stage of the process. And I think it has something to do with the relinquishment of control on the one hand, because the book is done, it's out of my hands officially, and then on the other hand, there's the waiting a fairly long wait before learning of the book's fate. Not that any book's fate is ever truly final, I guess. Or maybe it sometimes is, but nowadays not so much. The analogy that I like to use is uh, being in a waiting room at a hospital while a loved one is being operated on. just kind of twiddling your thumbs in some waiting room or your pacing or whatever it is. And then the doctor comes out and scrubs, pulls the mask off of her face and says like, I'm sorry. We did everything. (laughs) We did everything we could. And you know what? Hey, listen, who knows, right? Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? I don't know. You got to stay positive. Anything could happen. And no matter what, it's a book in the world. It's for the culture. It's a drop in the ocean of literature. Literature. So today's episode is brought to you by Dutton, publisher of Small World, the new novel by best-selling author Jonathan Evison. Small World is an epic. It is set against such iconic backdrops as the California Gold Rush, the development of the Transcontinental Railroad, and a speeding train of modern-day strangers forced together by fate. Chronicling 170 years of American nation-building from numerous points of view across place and time, Small World is a historical epic with Dickensian flair, a grand entertainment that asks whether our nation has made good on its promises. That Small World by Jonathan Evison, available now from Dutton. Today's episode is also brought to you by Amazon Crossing, publisher of the novel Blue by Emily Prophet. Blue is about a Haitian woman traveling alone from Miami to Port-au-Prince, And finding comfort at the airport, feeling free to ponder the silence that surrounds her homeland, her mother, her aunts, and her own inner thoughts. Between two places, she sees how living in poverty keeps women silent, forging their identities around practicality and resilience. That's Blue by Emily Prophet, translated by Tina Cover, out now from Amazon Crossing. Amazon Crossing publishes award-winning and best-selling books from around the globe, making international literature accessible to many readers for the first time. Find out more at apub.com. Okay, so I do want to say some quick thank yous to people who have pre-ordered my new novel entitled Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's coming out in May. It's available for pre-order. Thank you to Eric Moe, Andy Boyd, Farrell Dove, Kat Stern, Helen Adair, Rachel Pollan, Amelia Gray, and Les Christensen. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. If you're out there listening and you want to help the cause, you can pre-order my book right now. Just go to bradlisty.com. It's all right there. And if you want to, you can send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, and I will send you a note in the mail with a smiley face on it. I'll send you another people sticker, and I will give you a shout-out right here on the podcast. You can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Or you can DM the screenshot on Twitter or Instagram to uh, the show's social media feeds. Again, all pre order information is at bradlisty.com. All right, so let's get to the main event. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow Today's guest is Jamie Attenberg. Her new memoir is called I Came All This Way to Meet You, available now from Echo. Jamie Attenberg is the New York Times bestselling author of seven books of fiction, including The Middlesteins and All This Could Be Yours. She has written for a variety of well-known publications, including the New York Times Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and The Sunday Times, among others. And on top of being a very industrious and very gifted writer, she is also active in the literary community, very supportive of other writers, and a good follow on Twitter. So, Oh, and she also has a newsletter that you can sign up for that is uh, Beloved. So we had a really nice time talking, a good conversation covering a lot of the themes that Jamie addresses in her new book. It was fun to connect with her again after a little while. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Here she is, folks. This is Jamie Attenberg. And her new memoir, One More Time, is called I Came All This Way to Meet You.
1: I mean, the answer is yes, because I'm talking about me. And, like, it's there's nothing to hide behind. There's no characters to hide behind. And that's the answer that I have been giving. But I also just realized that I think maybe it's Actually, not that bad because I have published for so long and I have given interviews about myself for so long. And there was like a narrative that, you know, in the very small kind of totally irrelevant world of people who know about books, there's probably a little bit of narrative about me that already exists for some people. So... I haven't had to like, it hasn't, it's not like I'm introducing myself for the first time.
0: What's the narrative I, about you, do you think, that, that I, exists? I don't, know
1: what, I don't know what it is, but like people know that I've written books. Right. Right. Or like people, there are people who know that I like, I don't know, that I lived in New York for a long time. Something like that. Right. So it's like, I'm not like having to tell people where I live or what I've written or what I've been doing with my life.
0: Yeah. It's funny lived- as you say that I'm thinking about. My experience of reading the book and like, we know each other a little bit. We've talked for this show before Mm -hmm. and have spent some time together, but like, you know, there's stuff that I know about you, like that apartment in Brooklyn. I know what the view is like from that apartment in Brooklyn, just because of pictures that you posted online or something, you know, and I didn't even realize that I knew it until I read it. And then it's just weird how we pick things up about people digitally through the years, you know,
1: totally. I did another Um, interview with somebody this morning who I've never met in person who lives in Scotland. And she was like, the hurricane sounded really hard last year. (laughs) Right. Based on Twitter. I was like, it was, you know, and she subscribes to my newsletter or whatever it is. Like, so she knows that. So it's like, there's a pretty consistent, like I've been, I've been consistently me in again, an extremely small, part of like whatever the literary public eye is for, for a long time now for like 15 or 16 years so it probably is different than like somebody who's like just never never had to introduce them you know and so like I probably I'm getting different kinds of interviews and things like that so it's not I think maybe it's like a little bit easier but it's also harder <laughs> but at least it's not like I'm not doing 50 interviews where I have to say the same thing over and over again. Maybe I'm doing 15 or something like that.
0: Is it more stressful to like have yourself, I guess, you, you know, you've already kind of answered this. You've already been yourself on the page and on, online and everything, but like, is there any difference in how you go through the process or is it just the
1: same? I mean, I, I feel like I, I it was more the lead up that was hard. Like two months ago, three months ago, even like the period of time between when you finish the book and you finish the copy edits and there's no going back to like when people then there's like a wave where people start actually reading the book and there's like that in between period where like actually I felt really happy for a minute because no one had read it yet and I still could just like live with it and have this sense of accomplishment about it and like, the you know, here's what I tried to do with this art project and, and I did it, you know, that kind of thing. And so there's, like, all these, like, waves of it. Like, my friend Isaac Fitzgerald has a memoir coming out, like an essay, memoir and essays coming out, like, in a couple of months, which I haven't read yet. But he just was going through this wave when I talked to him the other day where he was like, well, people are going to read this. <laughs> so there is that feeling of people are going to read this that is different That is different than when you write a novel. Yeah. Uh-huh. When you write a novel, you're like, people are going to read this. And also, I can't wait till they read it and sort of, like, Tussle with it or appreciate it or, or like place it on a like place it in the world, place it in the context of the world. And with this, it was like I was not very, I was like less excited about it getting read, although I'm happy when people are reading it and liking it, and more excited for it to just be done and over and that there was like a conversation about it that existed that wasn't going to make me sad which you know so far it hasn't made me sad like the review's been fine so I was waiting I wanted that to happen I wanted it to just I wanted to get over that hump and I also was like between Christmas and New Year's the offices of everybody was like they were closed and and then you know we were like everybody was freaking out again and again and again about COVID and I was like really locked down at home and it was the holiday season and I would say that's Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's just mere weeks ago was not fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, when is it ever?
1: In so many ways. Right. Like beyond like my like little, you know, art project, but it wasn't fun for me since you asked. Yeah.
0: I mean, I relate on many levels to what you're talking about. This, uh, sort of limbo period. And then like the feeling, the good feeling of having it done and like being proud of that and having it out of you. Yeah. And then just hoping, hoping that the conversation won't make you sad (laughs) if there, if there is a conversation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If there is a conversation, but then like, like it's been out just today will be a week and three, I got three emails or three messages in a row last night from people I didn't know that all said, I feel less alone now. I was like, that's great. That's what you want. Right. Which is not quite the same as when you write a novel Right. Like a novel can keep somebody. I mean, you can have that impact from a novel if there's a character that feels really personal and recognizable to people in the world. But I think it's I think a novel is more about keeping people company than making people feel less alone. Maybe.
0: I think I think and I said this to you in an email that I sent to you right after I finished your book, you distinguish yourself in my mind among contemporary writers I mean, there are lots of great contemporary writers, obviously, but like, you're really good company on the page. Like, it's interesting to hear you use that because that's the the same like turn of phrase that comes to mind uh, or came to mind as I was reading this new book, but it also applies to past work. So, um, you know, and I think like being good company on the page and making people feel less alone, sort of the same thing, you know, maybe in different ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that. That's nice of you to say that. I'm glad that it made you feel that way. I, yeah, I, I, it's my conversation with the world. Writing is my conversation with the world. So I write in a conversational tone. I mean, I hopefully it's not sloppily. So I mean, it's you know, hopefully it's strategic and literary also. But I'm not trying to be off putting my writing. I'm trying to invite people in.
0: Yeah, and this is a book that's about, among other things. What it takes to be an artist what it takes to be a writer and uh it's very funny at turns and like recognizable there's a lot of humiliation that goes along with life i think in general but maybe creative life in particular and you know you document at the beginning of the book all the hustling that you did for the first half of your adult slash professional life all the jobs and different things you had to do to make ends meet and Uh, And then you get to this, you know, this place where you're writing and publishing books and getting some good reviews and building a career. And then in the midst of it all, like you're at a reading and, you know, a man, I think a man in line says to you something like, you know, you remind me of my daughter. She's also a narcissist, (laughs) which is like such a laugh out funny, like laugh out loud, funny moment. But it just felt kind of perfect. Like I, there's something about that moment and that kind of experience that registers with me because no matter how much success you have, it seems like you're never going to get beyond that sort of thing. Right. I mean,
1: no, never. And I don't even really think I, I don't think people, I think many people have not heard of me. (laughs) So like, I just went into New York and I signed stock at, I don't know, I'm going to say seven bookstores and only three of them knew who I was when I walked in the the door. Like they knew I, you know, like my publicist had called ahead. So there was a stack of books sitting there, but then it was like whoever they had spoken with wasn't the person who was giving me the books. And there are a lot of young booksellers out there who just have no idea who who I am. And I was like, you know, I didn't really even care because it's been, you know, 15, 16 years of people, you know, 20% Twenty percent of the booksellers knowing who I am, maybe. That,
0: that's pretty <laughs> like good, I, though.
1: <laughs> I think it's for. I think it's for ever. I think the humiliation is forever because we've taken on this task of. Um, it's you know it, it's because we love to do it. It's not because we expect anyone else to love what we're doing. You know that's why when like a nice email shows up, I'm so you know I'm really really. Happy and not because even from like an ego perspective, although that it is probably helpful for that, too. But just because I'm like, oh, somebody read me. That's so nice. (laughs) That's really like and they got something out of that's really nice because mostly it's just I mean, I talk about this a lot in the book, but it's like mostly it's just like you're by yourself. So much of the time, I mean, I worked on this for like I started writing it 2019. I started working on the proposal really like summer of 2019 and now we're at winter 2022. So this is something that I – and some of the parts of the book I wrote 10 years ago, you know, because it's like a – I've adapted, like, existing essays and sort of collapsed them or rebuilt them into other essays in or chapters of the book, I should say. So I've been living with – and it's me. So I've been living with this material for, like, a really long time. And then you get, like, basically a week to go to bookstores and hope somebody – You know, it will still be in the bookstores after this, but they really only care about you for a couple of weeks, if that.
0: Yeah, it goes fast, right? There's just, there's more books
1: coming up behind you. But if you think about it, like the fact that I got to like spend time working on this for two years is pretty awesome. If that's what you love to do, if you love to sit down and write and fiddle around with sentences and words and structure, which is like the most fun in the world for me, then I, you know, then it's fine.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's always <laughs> a
1: pretty good life. <laughs>
0: I mean, that's it. I mean, that's the reminder, right? I, the constant reminder that even with all the tough stuff and the humiliations and the stress, it's still like a really lucky thing to be able to even have the chance to do.
1: I feel like maybe I'm, I probably have like two more weeks that I have to be kind of occupied with the book in a, in a way where like I'm online and I'm, this week is really the last week that I'm doing press and I have a couple, I have two virtual events and then next week I have one virtual event and I don't think I have any more press left to do unless something pops up. But, and I'm probably will just sort of quietly fade into social media away from social media, like by the end of the month and then and just start working again and it's going to be great. So, but it was, it's still. you still want to sell. Well, you still want to get reviews.
0: Sure. 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 Uh, I want to read you. A quote from the book, if I may. Which yes,
1: please. If you do it in that exact voice that you using
0: right now. <laughs> Did I change my voice when I said that?
1: You got a little deeper. I liked it. Go ahead. I'm so,
0: okay. So, and I quote: I believe that one must arrive at an intersection of hunger and fear to make great art. Hunger to succeed and create something brilliant and special and affecting. Fear that your life will remain just as it is, or worse forever
1: yes it's true it's all true that is true how i that is how i feel about it all somebody asked me about that the other day and i couldn't remember what i said but i'm so glad that you read it i mean i just i'm hungry i'm always hungry i'm always hungry in one way or another uh but i am it is possible to like be satisfied for periods of time too so and then I think even, like, when I was starting out and I really didn't like my advertising work career that I was doing at that time, copy editing, copywriting and things like that, I was like, oh, my God, if I have to do this really, truly for the rest of my life, I'm going to be really bummed out, like, if this is – because I, I think it is a wonderful – it's wonderful for other people to do that job, and it's not a wonderful job for me. Anything where I have to, like, regularly be in – I almost feel like I've talked about this before in your podcast, like, me being in – like, having to having to be in meetings – I'm really – I can't do – I have a hard time with meetings, you know, and like selling things I don't believe in and and stuff like that. So I I really was like – I really wanted it. I really wanted it. I really wanted to make my art, but also I really didn't want to have to do the life that was – the path that I was on. I was really scared that that was – that I was going to have to be that way forever. And I was also scared that I would like live my life never – trying and never and never being happy with who I who I was and what I was trying to do with my life so that this is when you get to become proud of yourself a little bit that you that you did it a little bit but also you have to do it every time
0: does it get easier with successive books or is each project like just like a blank slate
1: I think you know I mean it's always like starting over but I think you know what your patterns are more Like, you know, when you're like feeling really bad about your work, when you've been writing and writing and writing, I know now that it's usually because I'm on the verge of figuring something out as an example, whereas like maybe my first few books I was like angrier at the world or angrier at myself because I couldn't get to where I needed to go. I can like recognize like I have some strategies in place, like things that I can do to brainstorm that I probably didn't have at the beginning. I'm getting better at figuring out when something is a good idea that I could go long on versus a good idea that just makes me laugh. Right. I have like a running tally of like book titles and things like that. So I'm like always thinking this is, this is the greatest idea for a book ever. And then I just write the title down and then I never go back to it ever. And some maybe there's just like a moment of satisfaction that comes with the concept and the writing of the title down and then you don't, need to do it anymore so things like that things like understanding like what kind of what the publishing world is like is helpful like people i i do give tend to give a lot of advice to debuts and they're like what what does it mean when this happens and i'll say that's good or can i why don't i know that have this information yet well you should just ask your publicist and they're the ones who are going to know Stuff like that. Somebody the other day was just like, "Do you know a good car service in New York? Because I want to. I I have a book that's coming out, and I want to go to New York, and I want to like drive around all these bookstores, you know, and have someone take me around for the day to do it. Who, Who was the car service you used? And I said, Well, before you do that, you should ask your publicist to ask the sales department which bookstores actually have your books in stock, so that you know which ones to go to. So you're not showing up somewhere and there's no book there, but you, but you know, which, which would be very disappointing and also not worth your, your time. So stuff like that I know about now.
0: Rolling up to a bookstore in a black car and just walking in and then not even having your book would be <laughs> rough. It
1: be real sad. <laughs> now for me, they did have them, but they just didn't know who the fuck I was. Oh, so. Well, you know,
0: that's their fault. Yes. <laughs> you said something in the book about the, the earliest like inklings of your writing career, where you were working all these different jobs, including what was it, the advertising yeah. dig- digital job, and something I underlined was, "What about my ideas? When do I own them?" And that resonates, you know. I think that's how a lot of writers feel, and maybe how a lot of people secretly feel, you know. Whether or not they act on it is a different story. But this wanting to have one's own name and to not be working in service of somebody else's dream, like that really hit home with me. I feel the same way.
1: Not everybody is an idea person, right? Like some people are like a doctor has ideas, but they don't necessarily need to, you know, their job, their job is not to come up with that. Well, I mean, of course they have to come up with ideas, but do you know what I mean? Like they don't have to like, they don't want to market them in the world. That's that sort of thing. I just happen to be one of those people who it, like they're, skill set is generating ideas and generating words and and things that could be sellable in the world or readable in the world. So it was, it did feel really important to me again. It was like that thing where I was like, if I end up running around after somebody else and helping them with their ideas for the rest of my life, I'm going to be really pissed at myself. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like if I, you can have good ideas about someone else's ideas, by the way, of course, and you can have good ideas in a collaborative environment. But for me, I wanted my ideas felt important to me, and, and figuring what to do, what to do with them, felt important to me. And my brain is like my is like my best asset in the world. Just did a whole other podcast this morning where we were talking about. Um, cause I have a whole run in the book about like being a pretty girl versus a smart girl. And there's just never been a time in my life where I've thought anything other than my brain is like the way to, I mean, I, I'm not disparaging my looks I'm fine. I'm totally fine for like, you know, a 50 year old lady and have been fine my entire life. But it was always sort of, I was always believed and was told that like being smart and having good ideas was really where it was at for me. So if you feel like that and you feel possessed, you know, like a possession of your ideas in that way, then it might feel important to you to go forth like I did and try to conquer or at least have time to write.
0: You know, writerly people tend to have more of a go it alone kind of thing and to also be an idea person and to be somebody who's like industrious and smart and wants to build like wants to be the person who comes up with the idea and builds something, but also wanting to do it alone. <laughs> uh, that's... It's
1: particular, It's particular, right? And the only way through to, to write something, the only way to it is through it, right? Like somebody, I, was, I always meet people who are, I'm sure this is like a common thing that writers tell you about or that you have experienced in your life, that I always meet people who are like, I always thought I could write a book or I got an idea for you you write it kid or i was talking to someone the other day who was like i had this idea about how i was just going to like do like tr- like transcribe like record it and then and then like get auto transcription and then that's how i would like write like, like i would just like talk into you know and then and that's how the book would get written and i was like there's no shortcuts you there's no like you have to sit down and do it you have to do the work there's no way around it that's like if there's one thing that i've learned like you know 16 years or whatever it's been of publishing is like you just have to really want to want to do this sit down and write or type or whatever it is and like and when it like rewrite it and restructure it and take edits and copy edits and like it's just so much it's so much work right like it's so much like processing of words and brain your brain and feelings and like being somehow figuring out how to be emotionally true You know, if it's a real story or if it's like a made up story, like, oh, there's just so much stuff that you have to do. And you just, you have to, you have no choice. You have to feel like you have no choice in the matter.
0: You talk about uh, like that, the line in the book about, you know, how great art is made at the intersection of hunger and fear. And then you write about writing your first book, which you know, we talk about going it alone, but you had a friend who generously invited you to come do basically like an extended writing retreat at their property in Napa. Is that right? That was the first book.
1: Yeah. Okay. I'd written some stories already and then I went and and generated like probably two thirds of it in in Napa that summer. Yeah. And
0: something, something you said about the experience there, which like in my imagination was just like idyllic. You're in this little cottage in wine country and you get up and you make your coffee. (laughs) But you said that I uh, quote, like I cracked open the book, not with ease. And then I think you say something like, because writing a book is never easy, but with something like steadiness.
1: It's just making me want to write just hearing that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's making me, I can't wait till it's the end of the month then I can just go back to Work again, even though this is obviously work. Not that it's not a delight to talk to. You.
0: <laughs> I, understand. I understand. I was looking forward to this. <laughs> but
1: um, yeah, because it gives you, cause you get to, it's just like a place you can go every day in your mind, in your heart. And there's all these characters that you get to visit and, and you get to solve their problems or create problems. You know, it's like a control thing too, like the whole, but it's, it's like I never, You know, I say this too. I'm sitting here quoting myself over and over again, but it's all true. Like I'd never feel safer than when I'm in a book. I never like, like it's just a place to put myself and I feel more confident in the world when I'm writing because I had, you know, if I, if I sit down and do the work that I have to do every day, which is usually like a thousand words a day and I've done that, then I'm having a great day.
0: Yeah. And if you don't, and if you don't, you just grumpy.
1: It's terrible. Yeah, yeah, it's really grumpy. I haven't been so grumpy. I haven't been writing for like a, the last three weeks, I, except for like my newsletter. Although I did write one one day on tour, which was like amazing and restorative. It was like I did like a face mask for my soul or something like that. And and I have been like writing in my notebook and things like that as, as time has gone on. But I, yeah, I'm really, I know when I get back to it, I'll be, I'll be happy again. I'll be there.
0: Do you do like how you say a thousand words a day and like with some breaks when you're like, you know, you have a book coming out and you're doing all, all kinds of press and everything else like how like that's pretty really like you're always doing a thousand words a day or do you have like like fallow periods where you are periods where you're like in gathering mode maybe or like intake mode.
1: I think especially when you finish a book, there's like a period after you finish the book where you're not quite ready to start the new one or like, give it, give it your all. And so I think like last, the last, I wouldn't say in like, whatever, like there was the hurricane. So I like evacuated for 10 days. So I was like, I'm not really going to work on my book. <laughs> right right like, this is not happening when I'm like staying in like somebody's parents guest house or whatever, you know, I'm wondering, like, is everybody who's still stuck in the city? Okay. And is my house? Okay. And are my friends? Okay. who are sort of scattered all over the South and Southwest. So this past year was like, kind of a tricky up and down kind of thing. And also I was doing edits. So if I'm doing edits, like I'm not writing like a thousand words a day either. So when I get, so I, so I've learned to say when I'm writing the book, right. When I'm writing, writing, I just did a little quotations mark when I'm actually like able to work on the book. then that's what I'm doing. I'm doing a thousand words a day. So there are sort of, I don't, I'm not being myself about anything. I will tell you that. Like, I'm not like, oh, I suck. I haven't been able to get as much done as I wanted to. I finished last year. I finished my book and I probably have about 30,000 words just sitting there that like need to be cleaned up. And I think I'm going to throw some of them away. So I did actually do work last year. I did write last year, but I certainly haven't written, really written for a few weeks now.
0: But you know what your next project is.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think so. But then I think I also like want to like reconfigure it. But I know who the character is and I have like a trajectory for her and I in general know what the book is about and I've shared it with my editor and my agent has read 20,000 words of it. So it's due at the end of the year. So if something has to get turned in at the end of the year.
0: Well, that's good. It like,
1: yeah, it'll get it'll get done. I'm not like and I'm excited about working on it, but I don't know. I'm not as excited as I could because I'm not like in the middle of it. Right where everything feels like it's just moving at you and you're just like, it's so great. And you're just like moving things around on the page and you feel it. And you carry it around with you. I'm not like, I don't feel particularly pregnant with it. I know it's a terrible metaphor. But <laughs> it's so obvious, but I don't feel full. I don't feel full with it at the moment, but that's, but that's okay. So like, maybe, maybe like, here's another thing with like a debut author versus now. Like I, I was always right. I, I mean, I always was writing, but I understand now that it is hard to write in the wake of a book. When you There's a period after you finish the book that it's difficult to write in, and there's a period when the book comes out and after that that it's difficult to write in. And I think that there are, like, writers who freak out or feel bad because they're not writing something. And then on top of all that, we've got the pandemic, right? So if you've got kids, for example, or your teacher. I know it's hard for my teacher friends to be – they've struggled with, you know – their job has changed so dramatically not to mention if you're any kind of caregiver in the last two years, it's like, how do you like reclaim that time and mental space to write? It's tough. It's really tough. So the thing I don't want people to do is ever beat themselves up for not getting work done.
0: Speaking that you publish like you're pretty prolific and you seem to publish on a kind of schedule. You say you have a book due at the end of next year like, do you have yourself on a clock? Is there like I mean, obviously there are also financial realities to making one's living as a writer, and you have to publish to keep making money and all the rest. But how, how does that look for you?
1: Well, I've had the same editor. This is just the fifth book we've done with her.
0: With Helen.
1: Helen Atzma. Yeah. Who's the Who's now the publisher of Echo, and she's really great. And I, and she, I think she would say to me. If I said to her, I need an extra year or six months or whatever it is, for whatever reason, she would say, take that time, you know, if something like if I, God forbid, got sick or like a family member got sick or anything like that, as an example, or if like the hurricane had like blown off the roof of my house, which it did not do. It did everybody else's house, but it didn't my house. No, it didn't do everybody else's house, but um it, uh if that had happened as an example I think she would say that but I think if I was like just farting around she probably would be like well, are you okay like like what's going on I think it's like it it looks the way that it does because I do need to make a living and it looks the way that it does because I need to do I need to sit down and do the work so that I keep myself because I love it but also because it keeps me sane sure. so I want that. I'm on that cycle, because it's a cycle that works for me, one book every two years is not does not feel like an extraordinary amount of work to me. It makes sense to me to do it that way. I can do it that way, so why not do it that way?
0: Right, right. And I want to I want to talk to you about like the arc of your career. Uh, you write about this in the book, and you talk about the book that nearly killed you. Know as you characterize it, nearly killed your career. I think that was the Melting Season. It was your third book. Yeah, and. I found it useful to to read about this and inspiring to read about this because I think there are there have been a lot of times in my life where I'm like it's over like I'm and it's it's still maybe but you know like I think as writers we can get into those places where you're like maybe this is not going to happen and you know what many times it doesn't happen but you had this third book come out and it didn't perform and then you write about out of like the, and forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing anything, you can correct me in a second, but out of the kind of depths of this experience is born your fourth book, which is the Middle Steens. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it didn't perform well, but I didn't realize that I was like as bad as it was doing as poorly as it was. And I just was writing the Middle anyway, because what happened was I wrote the fourth book. And then when we went to go sell it, my publisher was like, "Oh, did you know that the third book really sucked?"
0: Right, right. <laughs> so
1: we don't want you anymore. So like that's kind of what ha- that's how it really works. It wasn't like a response to the third book. It was like a but it was and uh, and it was really like uh shocking to me because I was so confident in the fourth book that I didn't realize I ha- I hadn't really learned yet that you if you have a book that does so poorly that it can really tank your career.
0: May I ask what, quote unquote, so poorly means? Like how many, like if a book sells like 2,000 copies, 5,000 copies.
1: I have to tell you that I don't honestly don't remember. I just know that the second book, I had the same publisher for both, which is Riverhead. And the second book and the third, I mean, I'm happy, honestly, very happy to give you numbers if I could remember them. I think what happened was the second book I got, not a lot, a lot of money, but a pretty good amount of money for and that book I think sold like 6,000 copies or something like that which these days would not be like the end of the world but it was because I had been like and you know had gotten enough money off of it that it should have been they expected more from me and at that time books sold a lot more than they do now because that was like 15 years ago or whatever it was and then I think the next book didn't really get very much Review, review coverage. I want to say I got a couple of reviews. I think it like that, like from any like I had never been reviewed by the Times at that point. I was not I didn't really get a lot like a lot of interviews or anything like that. It just sort of came and went. The, the the trade reviews were really not enthusiastic. And then I want to say I like maybe sold like I'm making this number up, but it's probably not that far off. Probably a couple thousand copies of it or something. And at that time, like e-books weren't really. Quite taking off yet, so like maybe I would have been able to counter it, or I don't know. No, it just did. It just did really bad. Like they didn't want to be in business with me anymore, and they didn't really get the the fourth book, which was the one that was like my biggest hit.
0: But Helen Atsma did get it, and this was Helen be- got it. Yeah, this was the beginning of this very fruitful and like kind of anachronistic, long-standing writer, editor, publisher relationship. Like this is the sort of dream that I think a lot of writers have to find a home. And to have somebody who gets your work and champions it and all the rest, like that's that's a good spot to be in.
1: It is. Wait, I need to tell a really funny story though, because it's just happened. And I i and I say this not like it was this person was very nice to email me the other day. So that when that book came this is very nitty gritty, but when that book came out, there were only two bids on it. Or when I we went out on submission for it. This is very inside baseball, but I'm sure you're like listening, your audience is like inside baseball, right? Sure. So um and I think I even had this in the book and then we decided it was too inside baseball. Like, there's a lot of inside baseball stuff that we cut out of the book, but I just wrote it all down. But there were two bids in the book, right? So one was like from I want to say like Harper Perennial, and maybe like maybe like Cal Morgan or something like that, or I, maybe I don't want to like say his name out of turn, but I think he I think he did maybe or some or like an underling of his of his did. He was at Harper Perennial at the time. Now is at Riverhead, and I think they bid like. I don't know, like $15,000 or something like that, 15 or 20. And then I got a little bit more from Helen. And so we just like went with Helen and we had a nice phone call and that was it. And nobody else would touch me. Nobody wanted to go anywhere near me at all because my track record was so bad. And Helen was like, I get it. And I know how to re we're going to relaunch you. We're going to pretend like it's your first book, basically. You know, I don't know if she said that, but that's basically what what happened. And somebody emailed me the other day, a very nice person who was sending me a really who sent me a very nice note. And but in her memory, she had bid on that book and lost it to Helen from a totally different publisher. And there's no way that that person bid on this book because I know exactly <laughs> So I like that there, but she's like, I read it and I loved it and we, of course we couldn't get you know we didn't get it or whatever. And I was like, I know and I wonder if there are other people in publishing out there who are like, we really wanted that book, we couldn't get that book because my memory at the time... Was And I had met other editors and stuff like that was like, we really love that book, but we could not bid on it because you, your book sales were so bad. So I like I actually appreciate a revisionist history. I have gotten revisionist history that like, I've won all these awards. I've never won an award, unless you count like my mom you know, saying you're the best writer ever. <laughs> you're my best child writer ever. <laughs> so I like people, like, it's like a lot, it's like my career has gotten like long enough, like I stuck around long enough with Helen, thankfully that people are like, are like misremember my career or their interactions with me. And I I think it's, I think it's charming. I find it charming.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's probably, or it po- is possibly if the person is being sincere and is remembering semi-correctly, it might be the case that, maybe there was somebody in there who really did want to bid on it but then they can shut that down they can like get into the editorial meeting and look at the numbers and just say yeah no like i don't yeah care.
1: yeah i think that's what happened so yeah. i think it i think it's genuine, genu- genuinely in their memory they they bid on it and then it just didn't and then helen somehow got it so it's i don't know it just made me laugh i didn't correct her i guess i'm correcting her now but i have a few i doubt she'll listen to this podcast
0: oh you hey listen you never know
1: if she if she does, thank you for the nice note.
0: <laughs> uh, so the Middlesteens, which is like, yeah. a, it's a triumph, especially after your previous publisher had dropped you because of these numbers. And there's this sort of like near-death experience for your career as you remember it. And then the Middlesteen hits in so far as a literary fiction title can hit. I mean, I guess there's a spectrum for these things and you kind of touch upon this in the book, but... That's kind of what I want to get get into a little bit with you because I think people from the outside looking in, whether they're just a devoted reader or an aspiring writer or a writer in the earlier stages, they would think like, "Well, like, oh my God, this is it. You know, Molly Ringwald read the audiobook, a copy of the book was on the show Girls, like what it didn't it like make a cameo like on a nightstand or something or on a bookshelf. Yeah. And then it goes out and there's like a lot of noise. Uh, around it I remember the middle scenes coming out you know you start to develop if you pay attention to book media you start to develop an antenna pretty quickly for when a book is hitting you know there's just a lot of there's more noise that one generated noise and yet I think it can be easy a lot of times for outsiders to misperceive what that really means Uh, so can you just talk about that part of it like what's it like to, to have a hit
1: Well, I want to say that I feel like every book of mine since then has gotten, like, reviewed in the Times or, like, gotten, like, this or that kind of thing. And even this book that just came out has gotten some stuff that I've never gotten before, which has been really nice, like, really good placement and things like that. But that was the one where it was, like, the perfect storm and everything came together for it. But you can have noise and it doesn't translate to sales. Trust me. You can. That one worked. And I'm not just – I'm not dismayed with how anything else has worked after that. But that one has by far worked the best.
0: That was the and break. I, that was your breakout.
1: Yeah, I had four. Yes. But the, what I'm saying is, even though that's that worked really well, there's definitely you can break out and then go back. Right. <laughs> but um, that was the one. It was really fun. It was really emotional. I felt really I didn't know how to quite how to process it when it was happening. Cause I didn't know that things were different. I knew things were felt different. Like I'd never been invited to a literary festival before. And all of a sudden I was invited to literary festivals. Not that that's like, you know, that, not that that in particular is a huge triumphant moment, but I was like, Oh, actually people want to hear what I have to say. Whereas I used to like have to beg for people to like, give me time or pay attention to me or anything like that. It was nice from a, like instantly from a financial perspective, it was nice to be published abroad. I'd never had that before. I was able to develop relationships with publishers that I, you know, that I continue to have until this day. Like my, in particular, my UK and my German publishers have been really great to me over the years. And it's nice to have five or six books out there in the world. My German publisher even like went into my back catalog and published, you know, I think one or two of those books. So it's nice to be a part of the world, like global world is what I mean, in a in a bigger way than just like doing U.S. stuff, which is would, would just be plenty, to be honest, but it's nice to have gone and traveled and toured and stuff like that. And it was great. I, it was great to be able to feel like, well, at least for a book or two, I can continue to make a living at this. I, every book, I'm like, is this going to be the one that <laughs> they take? They take it all away from me. But I just and so I don't I'll never stop working really hard because of that. And I feel like my publisher gets like like I'm now at the third house with her. Right, because I was like at Grand Central, and then I went to H and H with her, and now I'm at Echo with her. And I think that she see, you know, she's my friend, and she believes in me, and we have a good professional relationship. But I think she also recognizes that I'm really industrious and uh, and del- deliver. I deliver something, and I I think she appreciates like my onlineness too. And so, success is like great and and temporary.
0: Sure. Sure. And I think like maybe it seems like everybody who is successful knows that. And then people who are like striving for it or looking kind of up at the mountain imagine that it's somehow fixed, but nothing is. And I kind of feel like there's a great uh section in the book where you're talking about a, a peer of yours or a colleague of yours. So I think you refer to it as like the sexy writer in the bar on the bar stool. And she, I think, in the in the wake of the Middlesteins coming out and kind of breaking out and having some success, she wanted to sit down with you and kind of pick your brain, like as if it were a salad. Isn't that what you? Isn't that how you describe it? I don't know.
1: Only the good parts.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was an interesting experience to relate the way in which, like, another a fellow writer will watch, like, say, you have some success. And then we'll want to come like find out how you did it like find the math. i think the math of it is how you describe it right
1: yeah yeah um so first of all i would say that that character in the book is a composite of a couple of people and also like a lot of people to want to know how you do it how you do it like honestly if i could do it again i would (laughs) i have only done it that one time in that specific way. And it's harder and harder to do it now because there's, there's algorithms to contend with. And there's, there's just, it's just really hard. It's just really hard to, I mean, I think if like one, the the best lists don't shift a lot, you know, but I think the point of that really, you know, that chapter really was, yeah, there's no, you know, there's no math to it. And I was really lucky that a lot of things worked in my favor at once, but the, but really always the most important part is just like the writing of it you know and then there's another layer to that chapter which is like that when you look at your success or you know in terms of like in particular like a piece of art but I guess it could be any kind of success really I look at that book and I think about all the bad things that happened leading up to it like what Well, that chapter is like about how I like broke my ankle. It's just like a lot of happenstance. Like I broke my ankle and I was by myself. And I like somebody sent me a copy of a book that inspired me. And like, there's just like like tracing the DNA of a book. It's not as simple as like, well, I really liked Sense and Sensibility, but I thought let's mix it up, you know? (laughs) I mean, you know what I mean? Like,
0: sure, yeah. I wish you would. I wish I would have known you back when you were in Los Angeles with this ankle. I would have come over and.
1: You could you have out. also not come over cuz you were too busy. <laughs> that's like a lot of travel.
0: I'm really sorry Jamie, that's a lot of driving. And, everybody
1: else, <laughs> I know I I didn't It's fine. I'm not mad at anyone. Um, actually it's like there's a very funny funny story in there about my my mom came out to take care of me after I broke my ankle and I had this my friends who did live there who I was really good friends with. Um and I'm like and still know them but like, you know, that was a long time ago. They um, they threw a Thanksgiving dinner for me, and they were like they were like they're just like boozy at the time in particular, like kind of boozy broads, and they smoke cigarettes and they're funny they're funny ladies. And my mom is like not accustomed to that at all, and she was really not having a great time because she was like, "I'm there, I'm in a huge cast, she's about to leave me," and. <laughs> I like was on drugs because I was on painkillers, and I like went and hid in the bedroom and left her alone in the bedroom. And she came in, and she's like, don't you leave me out there with those ladies. You know? <laughs> she was not ha- happy at all. And my, one of the women who was one of those ladies texted me the other day because she finally read the book and said, sorry, your mom didn't have fun at that Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's really funny.
0: Well, I, I want to – something you just like touched on, I want to – uh talk about a little bit more you said that there was a book that you read that inspired you when you're tracing the dna of the middle or any book that you do but for the purposes of of this the middle you had broken your ankle you were like a lonely in los angeles and dealing with this injury and then you read i believe was it olive kittredge
1: i read Olive kittredge yeah and that was really formative for me the way that she structured it i had read linked stories in novels before in fact my first book had been linked stories not really a novel more of a story collection but they did it did follow up all the same character. and at that time there was like remember that that was like that one story collection that was really big like well one of the stories got published in the new yorker oh, i wish i could remember it was like some like a kiss in new york or god what God, what was the name of that story collection? It was really famous that it's going to, I'm going to remember it after the fact. But, and it was very trendy at that time in a way. Like, or when I was coming up, when I first moved to New York in the 90s, it was very trendy to write story collections, you know, linked story collections. But that was bigger. Olive Carriage was, was, was like a really big deal. And that sort of like had a slow burn to it. Like, it wasn't like a big bestseller right away, I don't think. And then it won the Pulitzer. That'll that don't I, believe that's how, I believe that's how it worked. Like, it had come out even came out in paperback early. Ben, Ben Dreyer was the copy editor on it. And he obviously is like, I think he's like the editorial director of random house or something like that now. And he only, he only, I don't, he only copy edits like Elizabeth Strout. Like he does meetings and is inspiring. And then he like, that's his one book he'll do every two years or whatever is Elizabeth Strout's book. Anyway. So I'd asked him about at the time and it was like just a good book. It wasn't like necessarily at the time the book that everybody was going to read. It had been selling. It came out in paperback early. Just goes to show you, man. Just goes to show you. You never know what's going to hit. And they had, but they were like, people believed in it. And they they thought it was a good book and and it showed up. And I was like, it just something how I, I keep meaning to look up the science of reading. And maybe you know what it is, like what it does to your brain, like how it reconfigures your brain, how it like what the impact it has on the synapses of the brain. And there was something about it that was just so electric and kind of just realigned everything. And I thought, Oh, this is how I, this is how I write about where I grew up. I hadn't even been thinking about wanting to grow write about where I grew up, the suburbs of Chicago. Not a lot of books are set in the suburbs of Chicago. Right. Um, but I just, I had been 20 years since I lived there and I really was like, Oh, I think I, Oh, that's how you do it. That's how you write about a town or a community and people and um and then i didn't write it right away i just thought about it but i saw how you could do it and that's that's what books do man that's do what you know, i
0: right? yeah that's what i was just going to say like what it makes me like there's so many different things that your book does but uh, among the ones that i think stick with me the most is how it like reminds me of these kind of maxims about writing that i know but i just need reminders of and like one of them is that the best part about it is the actual writing. I I don't know how many times I've been having I've had conversations on this show with writers who say something along those lines. The best part of it for me is when I'm in the book and I'm writing. Another thing um and we're talking about it right now is that books are made of books. And if you're lost or you don't know what the next project is going to be or you're having structural issues with a project that you're in the middle of whatever it is like it's an it's intake really issue. Helpful
1: yeah and then it's like and what kinds of books do you read for what kinds of needs that you have like somebody had said when i was writing that book somebody said to me you should also read um the corrections by franzen uh mr franzen as i call him and I read that and that was also like really helpful for me from a structural cause he's just a master structuralist as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, uh, and a master at close third. So reading, even though, even, even though my book feels like neither of those books and it's about totally different subject matter, even just the fact that it's about Jews, right. Which is very different than what they were writing. Um, it's still that like, I can point to those two books, but also I can point to like, Everything I've ever read in my life and every conversation I've had with like, you know, a, a family member, even though my family isn't that, you know, or anytime I had to go to like somebody's bar mitzvah, even though my, there was no bar mitzvah that I went to, it was ever like this one, you know, but books are, books are like, like I could read, I, I find that when I read poetry, it's actually probably the most helpful at certain stages because it's just about words. I always cut like, I I wish I could remember. I feel like I've had this conversation with you before. Forgive us listeners. I mean, who the hell is listening to all three of these?
0: (laughs) It's a complete set. Right. The complete
1: box (laughs) set, Jamie and Brad. Um, But I, when I read poetry, it's like, like there's like a, there's stuff that I read at the before I start a book and there's stuff that I read when I'm, during the book, like if I want to like learn how to like do a certain kind of thing. And then there's always like a read that I do in the book or a revision I do in the book where I'm just reading poetry where it's just like – where I can tell that my language is not where I want it to be or my sentences are not where they want to be. And I just want them to be like – I want them to feel light. I don't like to have dense writing, although I admire dense writing, but I like it when people are reading my book and even, and if they're not interested in reading it I'm in the way that I like have really, truly written it and they just want to like get the story and they just maybe not skimming but reading it quickly. Like I always want to make sure there's like a, you could just read things in a really propulsive kind of way and just, it, it would feel like a page turner, even though there's not a. It's not a page-turner plot. Nothing I write is a page-turner plot, but the sentences should be like the page-turner aspect of it. But then you could also read my books, like if you really want to pay attention to it a couple of times and see how there's lots of little tricks and Easter eggs and structural fireworks, things that I do along the way. That Either way, whatever you want, just read it.
0: I, was, I, would, I think that is a very astute analysis of your own work because I think as I was saying when we first came on the line, you're good company on the page. I think another way of saying that is, is that your writing goes down easy. Like it's it's a pleasure to read, and th- that to me is high praise. I, I think that easy reading is hard writing. That's what I always tell myself, anyway. And th- that's sort of a job. Like I can have some appreciation for like a, a more like high academic or dense, yeah. like super thinky writing. I can take that in small doses, but in the world that we live in with how busy and crazy it is. I think most people, they pick up a book if they pick up a book at all. But if they pick up a book, they're sort of hoping that the writer has done the work, you know, and I feel I can feel frustrated sometimes by writing that I feel like kind of holds the reader at arm's length instead of inviting them in.
1: I mean, that's also like that's their choice, choice, like and that there is a readership for that, too. Like some people just really like to spend you know time like breaking through breaking through the wall of that sentence and there's something to be said for it it's not what i'm super interested in i think i view it as a, as a challenge to make something that is both literary and accessible at the same time that the ideas are the ideas and it, it's very it's, it's hard to do it's very strategic on my part to do i think it's very hard to do if. I think commercial fiction, like not enough respect is given to just purely commercial fiction, because if you, if you can write something that grabs people, even, even I don't want to, it's like, I'm not even trying to put any judgment on it all. Basically. Like if you can write something that grabs people and they want to read all the way through and they feel entertained or challenged or changed a little bit, no matter what it is that that is hard to do. And authors should feel a sense of accomplishment when they've, when they've done that, whatever the genre, whatever, the age level you're writing for any of that. It's really hard. It's just really hard to do. So I have respect for all, all the, all the writers out there who can sit down and do the work.
0: Right. Right. And I think too, like there's wisdom in cross pollinating as a reader, you know, Uh, I feel like for people who have an interest in writing literary fiction, it's probably a good idea to read some commercial fiction and vice versa. Like, do you do that as a reader? Do you have...
1: I'll I'll read the first 50 pages of anything. I might not get to the end. I'll read stuff just to see what people are doing. You know? Like, what's the... Oh, this is the book everybody's talking about. You know, even just to see what the sentences are. I try to finish things, but I don't... I get so much stuff to, you know, that I have to read. Or, like, that I'm going to consider for a blurb or something like that. So... I like to see, I like to see what people are doing. I also like to see, like, I just, I just said this somewhere else, but like, I like when Lauren Groff has a new book out, I'm always like, what's Lauren doing? Let's see what she's up to. Like, she's someone who is like publishing, you know, she's a dear friend and she's publishing at the same pace as me for the most part. So I think both of us are always like, all right, what's, you know, what's the other person doing? I'm always interested in like, when Sam Irby puts out a new collection of stories, I'm like, you know, of essays, you know. I'm like, let's see what's on Sam's mind because she's such a great bellwether of like what's going on in the world in a way. Like, I'm interested in like all like all kinds of debuts because they're the future. You know, they'll be the ones who will like throw the dirt on my grave. <laughs> she's, <laughs> gone. she's gone. We, we all lasted her. Um, no, I'm always I'm interested in debuts. I'm interested in like who also like who's. Like people who have books coming out the exact same time as you, sure it's easier to like pay attention to it because you're all you're like on the same list or you just see them online a lot more. Like we're all you know it's sort of like we're all showing up for the same party for a while, right? And then leaving at the same time maybe we share a cab home together or something like that or get a nightcap together. But like that, like, so I'm always aware of like what that is, but I'm like, in theory, like they are, all, we're all kind of writing our books at the same time. We're all sort of chewing on the same world at the same time. Don't you want to see what the other person's doing? So I think my, the thing that I'm like, I really wish I read more translated work, but I try to do that. I definitely have made more of an effort to do that. Um, but, and I really try to, um, I really feel like I I wish I'd read more stuff that came out a hundred years ago. And I, I feel like there's like a little bit of gap gap in my knowledge for my last book. My last novel, I did this event with somebody who was like a head of a creative writing program. And she's like, I really see, like, I can't remember which Russian writer it was. She was like, I can see his influence in your work. And I'm like, never read him. (laughs) Sorry to say, never read him. Feeling really embarrassed about it, but I've never ever read him. So, but just a reminder that everything's already been done before too. is helpful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and no matter how well read you are, you're always going to have Im- what you probably feel like are embarrassing gaps. Like there's no way, you know, to cover it all.
1: It's there's no way, but it's, so it's okay. It's actually okay. I'm not an, I don't, I don't like a snob. No. I'll tell you that much.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to cover a, a few more things uh, about your book and maybe I'll do two of them at the same time. Uh, because this book does a lot of different things, you know, and uh, it touches on a lot of different parts of your life experience, but also like the the experience of a person trying t- to make her way creatively. So motion and travel is definitely a theme that stands out. And then this is also a, a book that is a lovely ode to friendship and the role that good friends have played in your life. And oftentimes the two things intermingle, you know, the travel and the uh un- un- unrooted nature of your earlier life in particular often meant that you were crashing at friends' houses on an air mattress or with family or you know being like your friend Sunil comes off very well uh in this book like I found I have a lot of affection for the Sunil if that, I don't know if that's a compositor, if that's a real No, person. he's real. Yeah, he's just a I lovely lovely human. I like
1: you. Name.
0: <laughs> yeah i like i like sunil but you know he helped you out i think with rent at one point uh, you know and kind of like you know we need we need friends to make it in life period but maybe especially in uh, a creative life and then just all the motion you really have done a lot of traveling and what did you live in seven apartments in 18 years that you spent in new york something like that and I don't know it was kind of exhausting but also inspiring <laughs> and i just like I'm to
1: i'm not doing it anymore
0: yeah but i mean it's the only thing you i think it's the kind of thing you can only probably pull off in your youth right
1: i mean i was like excited to do a lot of it and also some of it was born out of desperation and then some of it was like i just if i sat still then i had to figure out what i was doing with my life and you can meet a lot of travelers on the road and some of them love love it and some and some of it are running from something i think um, a lot of travelers are running from something or don't want to deal with something when i landed here i was like ready to you know in my mid 40s it was like oh i'm ready to deal with myself i mean i think it feels feeds you as like a creative person though to go out there and do it it doesn't you don't have to travel like i did you don't have to travel around the world but i do always recommend like doing at least taking a bus somewhere across town or whatever, like being pulling yourself out of your like rigid could potentially rigid structure. It made a lot of sense at the time. And then it was, and then it, and then it was like, I'd been doing it for too long. And I had to get off the ride. I mean, I was 40 and I was couch surfing and I was, you know, it was very, felt like I said, desperate. And I felt a little, and I was like a a little bit ashamed, but I also it really forced me to reconsider like, is this really what I want to be doing? Is this worth it? This kind of hustle. And then, and the answer was yes. And then fortunately I had the book that was like the breakthrough book, but I hadn't actually made that decision before mean to like write about it sometime. Cause there was like, even I didn't put it really in the book, but there's like some other stuff that happened before then that really forced me to like reckon with myself. And I just was like, I'm just gonna, I'm in, I'm in, I'm all in. It was just better than anything else. So writing, I know that's not what you asked me about, but the traveling felt like it was facil- facilitating the writing.
0: And then you landed in new Orleans, which is where you currently reside and have kind of put down roots.
1: Yes, and that – and I still – I I just was out on the road for 10 days and I liked it. I, I needed it, but I also didn't need it as much. Like I've sort of like stored up enough experience and ideas for a while. And I know that it's out, out there. And also it was like we couldn't really go anywhere for a while anyway. Right.
0: Here. What are you going to do? Like put on right. like two masks and get on a plane and cross yeah. your fingers?
1: yeah. But I think I like I did have once I stopped at the beginning of the pandemic, like I had like a little bit of an identity crisis because I still had like a bunch of touring that I was supposed to be doing and I was watching it all sort of get canceled and fall away. And I was like, who am I if I'm not doing this? Because that had become so much a part of my identity, too. Like it wasn't just the writing. It was the like being, you know, public facing in the world and in America. And so I was, I had to like kind of recalibrate who I was amongst everything else that was going on. I got, I started therapy.
0: I want to talk to you about this. One of the things you talk about is mental illness, uh, anxiety, uh, especially around flying. And then um, you're candid about like alcohol and drugs in like a plain spoken way that I appreciate. And then there's this really funny scene Uh, where you're talking to a therapist and you've been to multiple therapists, but you have a therapist that you're feeling good about. I believe you're like roughly the same age and you're in the office with her post pandemic. I mean, like in the midst of the pandemic, but like, you know, where you're actually in office, you're both masked and you describe this funny scene where you're not able to read her face and it is a she, correct? It's a, it's a woman. Okay. So this cracked me up because I have had the same sort of human exchange in different contexts where you're wearing a mask and you're like talking to somebody and you're smiling but they don't know that you're smiling and so then you're like trying extra to sort of smile with your eyes or you can't tell if they think it's funny you know like to do that in a therapy context was funny to me
1: (laughs) because I feel like I have to like entertain my therapist or something or I need her approval no it's okay I I was thinking about this so much when I was flying because I you know it was more than I'd flown when I was doing this little tour and I was like everyone this is why everyone's going insane on planes because no one can see the response right like the real response I mean also some of these people are going insane on planes because they're insane <laughs> but <laughs> but I was like for me as somebody who like has worked really hard to get over flight anxiety only to see it like renewed yet again this time because there's something about putting on that mask, which I know some people can just put on the mask and they, and, but I, and I put it on, don't worry. I'm not complaining about putting on the, on the mask, but there was something about traveling with it this time. that sort of like brought back this little panicky feeling. There's a lot of, or like, I was like, if I had to like break down the anxiety I was having, it was like one, like I can't really connect with anybody at this moment to like feel safe. Like I'm really, truly on my own in this panic stricken moment Two. I'm worried that I'm going to get sick or something on this plane. And I'm traveling around meeting all these people and seeing all these people three. I'm worried that somebody's going to like hit a flight attendant or something like that, you know, like there. And then on top of that, I'm on a plane and this is not a natural place for any of us to be, we not be <laughs> on this plane. Right. Um, At all. Like it's ridiculous. Like I feel, it feels fine to be honest about all of this, like on a zoom or, you know, on this podcast or, in person because everybody i know is like going through it going through you know and i also find that it's like frankly comforting to know what it is that's wrong with me because i used to be mad at myself because i couldn't handle things
0: and it's anxiety i I
1: thought that's how i thought that's what it was like it's my fault because i can't handle it like that i feel this way so now I don't feel as bad because it's not really my fault per se, quote unquote fault. I know that there are things that I can do in order to deal with it. And if I'm not dealing with it, if I'm not taking care of myself. That's my fault. Right. Love to blame.
0: I feel the but... same way. I mean, I've been going through some anxious stuff creatively around my book lately in a way that doesn't feel. I'm like, this isn't me. Like, I'm, why am I so wound up? Like, it's unusual. And then I start to get like self-critical. And uh it's... You're that...
1: stressed now because it's hard, dude. Yeah. And yeah, it's going to be... It's going to suck a little bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> it sucks a little bit.
0: <laughs> so it's just like... But it's like trying not to... Like penalize yourself for having those That's sorts right. of feelings. And then also to like notice that the feelings are there, but to not become them. That's the challenge. Right?
1: So many challenges yes in life there's so many oh my dog just walked in there's so many um
0: sid i know sid. your dog yeah he's famous
1: uh, he's more famous than i am <laughs> um not hard <laughs> <laughs> um at, like uh there's just so many challenges like in the um hold on i have to let him out I'm sorry no, um, there's no problem. so many so many there's so many challenges in the um in the world so it's like that's why it's good to like think about and write about and contend with your relationship with your work and be thoughtful about it and then you'll when things are trickier right when you're like you have a book coming out and you're waiting for reviews or you're like trying to get an agent right or your, your book's out on submission like, you have, like, kind of the center to return to in yourself so that you re- you just go, well, I wanted this, and I like it because of X, Y, and Z. And this is why it's important for me to tell this story, and um, it'll make you feel better, I think, to know yourself a little – if you know yourself a little bit more and understand your relationship with your work, I think it'll make – I think it'll do something for you. So maybe tonight, Brad, do a little journaling. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I could, I could keep going. There's so much, there's so much in the book to talk about. Like we didn't get to your parents. I don't know if we.
1: That's all right. I've talked about them enough.
0: Yeah. You know, but like, you'll get this Uh, listener. You should know that you will learn about, you know, I think more about Jamie's like DNA, like literal DNA and how it, you know, informed her um, becoming a writer and I just appreciate like all the hustle and hard work. Like I keep track of you online a bit, uh, as one does. And you're just like a reliable figure in the literary world. And you're one of those people where I, like, I know you're doing the work and sort of helps me get in gear. I think you perform that function for more people than you probably realize though. You probably realize that you do that summer thing, right? The thousand words of summer, Yeah. you know, so you're good at like rallying, the troops a little bit and helping other people in the community. But I don't know. I just appreciate that. It's good to, it makes it seem possible in some way, I guess yeah, is what that's,
1: I'm saying. That's nice. Well, I'm going to probably be a little less, less online in the, in the, in the next few months, but I think I'll continue to do the newsletter because people seem to get something out of it. It's hard to come up with an idea every week to talk about. So sometimes I just talk about whatever I want to talk about. It has nothing to do with writing, but I think it's helpful. It makes people feel again, it's like that feeling like that they're not alone. I I don't I think the letters are fine. I don't ha, I'm not disappointed in them. I don't um like as I am with like most of my social media. But um I and there's always typos and probably, like I if I went and looked back at everything I would be like this was not good. This was not as good as I wanted it to be. But it's they're fine. And, um, but I think like even more, it's like just the understanding of somebody showing up in your inbox regularly to say, you can do it. that I think people really feel, you know, and I'll do it for as long as I can do it. And then I won't do it anymore. Probably. Right. I'll probably do it for at least another year. This was like, this is year five of, um, a thousand words a summer. So it's one of those things where it's like, I don't, I make a little bit of like people donate money and like half the money goes to charity and half the money I, I get. And it's not like a substantial amount of money, but it's like you know, helpful kind of amount of money and for it to sort of become something bigger, like a business or something like that, like it's not something I want to do and it's not what I do for a living. Right. Like, so it's only got to, I can only really do it for as long as it like feels good to do it. And I feels like I have something to say,
0: but I can't, how does it work for people listening?
1: it's just a newsletter and you sign up for it. <laughs> and then once a year I do a thousand words summer, where I get a bunch of other writers to contribute letters, encouraging people. And we all write a thousand words a day together for two weeks straight. And then I do like smaller versions of it. I did like two shorter versions of it this year. Cause I felt like people could use it and I could, could use it like where I just did it for like six days, five or six days, something like that twice. And it was helpful. And that was a smaller group, like a, like a site it's like, the 15,000 people that are signed up for the one newsletter versus the 2,000 people that are signed up for the other newsletter. And that felt manageable. It's a lot of work. It's like so much work and it's so many people. And I just really have to trust that everyone's going to behave themselves and do what they do, what they, you know, and I get hassled. Sometimes I get hassled online because of it. Or people really? like Yeah. Or like people get annoyed. Like some people like don't like it. The, the day that I'm starting it didn't work for them. Right. Right. I mean, I choose the date because my accountability partner is a teacher and a parent. And so I say to her, what day will work for you? And then I have to assume that whatever day works for her. And like the two weeks that are following that is honoring people who are teachers and parents. And who, some
0: who is this accountability partner? Am I allowed to know?
1: I, I've, I've written about her before. Her name's Ann Gieselson. She's a memoirist. She lives. She's my neighbor. She's a, a really good friend. And, um, but like that's who I like run things through because if it were me, I could do it whenever. Right. And do do it and do do it whenever. So I need like somebody to to guide like because it's about being of assistance to people and inspiring people who don't have the time and doing it in the summer is helpful for teachers because they have time to do it. So, I'm just it's not for it's not really for me. It's for everybody else.
0: Is there a good literary community down there in New Orleans?
1: Yeah, everyone's really nice.
0: Yeah. There's Mm
1: -hmm. nothing, there's no competition down here. It's not like New York. There's nothing to get down here, right? Like there's no, there's like a handful of teaching gigs and, you know, there's a handful of like, I think there's like one one writing, graduate writing program, two, one or one graduate writing and then like some other, you know, smaller run writing programs. Um, There's not any journalism jobs really to get. There's like a paper newspaper, Right. There's a couple of magazines, but not not like in the New York scales. No one's getting paid a buck award down here, I don't think. Maybe right. somewhere. So it's not, you know, there's grant writing projects, stuff like that, but it's not like New York where everyone's like hustling for every single grant and teaching gig and all that. There's no point in schmoozing. Everyone just is pretty nice.
0: People are pretty nice down there. And you got what Mardi Gras coming up soon, but I guess it's going to be. Curtail. I'm
1: not gonna do it this year. My my family's coming for one, like the very first parade. They just happen to be coming to town, and then I might go to LA for Mardi Gras. I don't. I can't. It's just gonna be so weird this year. Yeah. I haven't really decided. It's like we're not quite ready yet, but yet we're doing it anyway. But I. But a lot of people are really excited about it. So like, if they want it, then they should have it. If it's safe.
0: Sure. I mean, it's one of the great features of living in Louisiana that I don't think most people might fully realize is that there's like a whole month of just celebration. And I don't yeah. know, there's like a whole statewide I to, party.
1: I just want to point out that I made a face when I said, if they want it, they should have it if it's safe, because I'm very internally struggling with all of that because who knows, right. but um, because it's people come from all over and it's different. It's like, I feel safe here in the sense that when I go to a restaurant or a bar, my vaccination card is going to get checked. Right, and I know where to go, and like who, and even still, you can still get sick, right? But like, I'm pretty. I have like some well, you know, some well traveled territory that I that I know that I can go to, and people that I, you know, where I shop and things like that. Mardi Gras, is like inviting, like like no one's checking vaccination cards in a Mardi Gras. Crib, you know <laughs> no. I mean? it's just like lots and lots of people coming at, at once. So I feel, um, but I also think for our economy, it's really important. So. I'm not the decision maker in this process. And I, but like, just needed to like add that because I don't want it to be like somebody quotes from this interview and they're like, Jamie Hedberg said it's fine and a great idea. <laughs> Everybody go to New Orleans and sneeze on everyone and yeah. make out. It's a
0: super spreader event in non pandemic years. I mean, right? Yeah. Let's be real.
1: Right. Yeah. So I just had to clarify that.
0: All right. Well, I love talking to you. Uh, congratulations on this new book. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of this little media blitz that's coming at you. And then good luck with the next project. Enjoy getting into that.
1: Thanks. I'm really looking forward to your book, which you said was coming to me.
0: In, yeah, it's it's coming out in May. It'll come to you later this year.
1: Great. I'm going to read it and give you feedback and then call you and interview you about it. <laughs>
0: You're welcome to, please. <laughs> it's nice to see you.
1: Nice to see you too.
0: All right, there we have it. That is Jamie Attenberg. Her new memoir is called I Came All This Way to Meet You, Writing Myself Home, available now from Echo. You can find Jamie on the internet at jamieattenberg.com. Follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at jamieattenberg. The book, again, is called I Came All This Way to Meet You. Go get your copy right now. It's a good one. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is available to you, the listener, for free. If you like the program, support the program. Tip your server at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. For as little as $1 a month, you can do that. There are different tiers, different levels of support as you move up the scale you can get stuff a t-shirt a tote bag a coffee mug a book club subscription I will wish you a happy birthday I will write you a postcard patreon.com P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com com slash other p-p-l pod if you have thoughts on the show and you want to write to me the email address is letters at other p-p-l dot com you can follow the show on twitter at other or on instagram at other Dot .podcast. The show's website is otherpeople.com, otherppl.com. This program also has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? Go to YouTube, search for the show by name, otherppl, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. Subscribe to the channel. It helps. This uh, podcast also has its own newsletter. Did you know that? I do a weekly email news blast. It's just once a week. That's it. It's free. You can sign up for that at the show's website, otherppl.com, look in the left sidebar. This program has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the other people with Brad Listy app wherever apps are available. If you want to rate and review the show over at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, that sort of thing helps. It helps in the algorithm helps other listeners find the show all right i think that's it